scripture tonight is a reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 21 through 31. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word of the Lord. attention to ancient mythology, even for just one brief afternoon. If you dig around at all, even maybe shallowly for one hour, you will find that the miracle of the parting of the sea is not a particularly original piece of work for a god. If the writers of our holy scripture were trying to convey something novel or groundbreaking here, they fail. It's derivative. By the time this story was written down, stories of God's parting waters were old hat. Isis parted the waters of the river Phaedrus in Egypt long before Moses was born. Kali crossed the Ganges with dry feet ages before Moses' dry feet. To mention this isn't exposing any scandalous secret. From the moment that people began to tell stories, they told stories of God and gods and goddesses who performed great feats. And maybe there are only so many great feats, because to be honest, they don't really vary all that much over time. Lightning bolts, fire, healings, plagues. In X-Men 2, Jean Grey, Wolverine's girlfriend, saves the mutants from drowning in a dam that burst by creating a 
kinetic wall as a shield against a flood. She made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And I like watching Jennifer Lawrence shapeshift. But it's not an original power. Gods have been doing that for millennia. Superpowers are fun to imagine, if not particularly inventive. And that's cool, I guess. It obviously speaks to something humans desire or something that they like to see in their characters. But anchoring your faith on some obviously manufactured sense of mathematical-like certainty that your God, the God you believe in, has superpowers, seems like something that hasn't been thought through very deeply. Maybe a little adolescent. I mean, not to be dismissive, but to believe that superpowers are at the core of who God is and what God does. At any rate, it's not very imaginative. Every origin myth about every faith, every religion, includes the miraculous. It's almost obligatory. It speaks to something, obviously, but it's maybe not the most interesting or meaningful or elucidating or intimately satisfying thing to hang your faith on. I may not be in the majority here, but the action parts bore me. I would just as soon fast forward through those scenes. I'm interested in the dialogue and the relationships, the emotional complexity between the characters. Subtle nuances seem worth considering. I'm sure it would be fun if the next time your child takes a bath, you encourage him or her to attempt to part the waters, as editors of the Arch Children book suggest. I mean, who doesn't like splashing in the bathtub? But I'm not sure, pointing to God's miraculous power to part the waters after their failed attempts, is pointing in a very meaningful direction. They've probably seen Jean Grey do it, or Superman, or Iron Man, or Storm, or Thor, or the Hulk, or Spider-Man. Children's stories about the miracle of the parting of the sea often focus on something along the lines of, see how great God is, God performs miracles. Miracles, unbelievable miracles. I'm not sure that trying to get them to believe in a God that acts that way is gonna be very helpful to them or us or the world. I could be wrong, but I don't think they're going to see God act that way. Though, of course, some sorts of believers do see the hand of God in earthquakes and disaster and the spread of HIV and Hurricane Katrina. Of course kids love superpowers. And maybe that's an easy way to hook them. But I wonder if the easy route usually ends up panning out very well. I don't think that faith or relationship or love or trust is ever easy. But I think the weight and the depth and the life of God centers on these things 
more than superpowers. Still, if you Google the parting of the Red Sea, it seems obvious that lots of people keep longing for proof of the almighty super deity. First thing that comes up, Exodus, Red Sea crossing, spectacular proof. Chariots in Red Sea, irrefutable evidence. Or more wistfully, the Red Sea crossing site has been found. These aren't articles aimed at children. They are adults who are aware that evidence for any of this actually having happened is tenuous. And so they are set on proving it with whatever means necessary. Fabricated science, sworn testimony, spurious archaeology. They are set on removing any ambiguity. In fact, the Red Sea isn't even in the text. It's a mistranslation. The sea that is parted is called the Sea of Reeds, a place without any geographical counterpart. Removing ambiguity is impossible. Maybe because ambiguity is part of the point. Mystery is necessary to these narratives in the Hebrew Bible. Mystery, the sea that surrounds any meaningful birth of a faith. I mean, what is it like to be a human in relationship to a God who is enigmatic? A God who is often difficult to discern beyond comprehending, always a little outside of what we know. Well, what a true story of the birth of faith look like, sound like, feel like. If you're concerned with cold, hard facts, irrefutable evidence, the dimension of truth that you are after may be quite different than the, the dimension of truth that faith reveals, which I think the scripture on the whole would suggest is more like love than archaeology. And love includes so many things, even things that seem in opposition to it. There are moments when children hate their parents, really feel like it. And there are moments when their parents feel like wringing their necks, really feel like it. And this is included in love, I believe. It doesn't seem very scientific, but it does seem true to me. The story in Exodus is the story of the birth of Israel, a community of faith eventually. And I like the story as the Hebrew scripture tells it. And one reason I like it is because far from being a story that resists questions, it's a story that raises questions with every movement with almost every word. Questions aren't settled here. They commence. They are launched. They come into being. And what is it like to have faith in a God who you can't see or comprehend, to believe in something that is wrapped in mystery? In this respect, these stories seem truthful to me. 
The people are enslaved in Egypt by a powerful pharaoh, yes. But it was Joseph who set up the means of their enslavement. The pharaoh is cruel, oppresses the people, won't let them go. But it is God, it is God, the text says repeatedly, that hardens Pharaoh's heart. The questions stand up, walk around, they slap you in the face. God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Really? Why in God's name? Throughout the the plagues, and then again, just as they're about to escape, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So that Pharaoh will chase them. So that Pharaoh's troops will end up drowning in the sea so that God might be glorified. Is there anyone who isn't offended by that? These stories don't draw clear, clean lines between heroes and villains, between victims and perpetrators. Every thread you try to follow, every thread you try to pull is all entangled. The Israelites see the Egyptians coming just when they thought they were free and they're afraid, apparently unaware of God's plan for God's fame. They see the Egyptians coming and they cry out to God sarcastically. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I like these people. They seem funny to respond to the situation with sarcasm. It seems to indicate that they have brains that are working. And the God depicted so far, I think, deserves a little sarcasm. A God so concerned with God's own glory, arranging things to make himself or herself look powerful, hardening hearts, drowning people. I think that the people that composed this story we're aware of differences between something ordinary and something extraordinary. And something extraordinary happens in Exodus. But there is all the ambiguity of the ordinary as well. A relationship is beginning. A nation is born. And like every birth, it involves blood and pain, There are moments on the cusp at the brink where you can't even be sure the labor will result in death or life. Like all birth stories, it involves the breaking of the water. The Reed Sea is a passage through the birth canal, and it is harrowing. I think the people who wrote the scripture were smarter than just taking miracles from other gods, attributing them to the Jewish God, and then demanding that people believe in this God. This is the story of a birth through a path out of water. The nation is a character named Israel. Israel springs to life at the Exodus. From birth and exile to suckling in the wilderness to a long process of maturation that has no definite end. And like mothers who give birth to children, God too is changed by the experience. And all the experiences to come with the baby, the tween, the teenager. As soon as they make it out of the birth canal, the people are thirsty and hungry like an infant. Of course, they immediately cry for food. 
There is no question that being born involves risks, hungers, possibility, fear. To be is to be vulnerable, to need. The people wonder, was it God's love that gave birth to them? Or did Moses just bring them out in the wilderness to die? They struggle repeatedly with this insecurity. They have been delivered, after all, to wander in the wilderness, where there are questions, 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 and wild animals. And they don't even know how long they'll be there. And it turns out to be 40 years. It is a long time to travel. It is a lifetime. The wilderness is decidedly not the womb. They're no longer slaves in Egypt, it's true, but are they loved? Will they be taken care of? This God led them out of Egypt, but they don't trust God yet. They don't really know God that well yet. There was this dramatic delivery, but what about sustenance? How is God going to behave in the day-to-day? It's one thing to part water and do miraculous things. It's another thing to provide sustenance. It is hard to believe that God provides what we need. It takes a lot of practice to be grateful for what we have. The Israelites don't have a lot of practice in these stories. They've just started their journey. Maybe they're just learning what it's like to be alive, to love, to be free. It's just the beginning of their narrative. They don't even know who God is yet. And we're not really so different. There's no logical or geographical reason for it to take 40 years to get from Egypt to the Promised Land. It seems like we often believe that the shortest, the most obvious, the easiest path is the best. But maybe God knows there is a need to wander. There is unmapped territory that needs to be explored, longings that need to be let go of or transformed. The path to intimacy may be long and complicated. Love requires vulnerability. Superpowers are powerless to create this. God in these stories seems to be a bit of a blundering lover, a new mother, but moving more than static, rigid, absolute. At moments, God is gracious and tender. At moments, Moses points out at Mount Sinai, God could be perceived as doing evil. These narratives about God are mixed. Like traces of an oppressive tyrant remain next to images of gracious love. And it makes sense to me that people whose imaginations have been confined and defined by empire, by the bastions of power and violence, might need a time of wandering in the wilderness to get free, to begin to see. They're learning. But it's a winding path. It's not fast, and there's switchbacks. 
At times, they revert to Egypt instead of growing into something gorgeous. At other times, they're grateful and they learn to love. Faith requires the imagination for goodness. The goodness of a God whose love is infinite, though maybe not always exactly flashy or obvious. More like gravity, essential, at work every moment, holding everything broken and beautiful, sweet and mean. This all certainly strains the limits of our perception. Asks us to expand our imaginations far beyond the usual, predictable, superpower fantasies. Israel's long and winding journey gives them plenty of time to think, to ask their subversive questions, their sarcastic questions. They get the freedom to zigzag, not only geographically, but intellectually and emotionally. We still live in the desert, somewhere between the Reed Sea and the Jordan. May we learn to love and trust as we zigzag and fear and hunger and wander. <laughs>